Hi, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana, and we are going pulpit to podcast. So each week we start with the sermon topic from the sermon of the previous Sunday, and we talk about it. So welcome to the conversation. We hope you enjoy. Pastor Dan, this past Sunday, we continued the Insurgent series based mm-hmm. off of Frank Viola's book. And I personally think that on Sunday, you took it to a whole new level. And I love it. Cool. I was eating it up. Thank you. And so, listeners, listen to it. It was a good one. But basically, Pastor Dan, you talked about so many things. It's hard to even really know where to start. But I guess it always starts with Christ, and it always starts with God. Mm. And one big point that you really got across was how through Christ and through Jesus, we are a new creation. Mm. And you said new creation a couple times, and I just could not help but hear the song in the back of my mind, the new creation. Mm. I don't remember which artist sings it, but it's a Christian contemporary song. But it's all about being a new creation. And so what does that even mean, right? Like, I'm hoping we'll dive into that here shortly. But there was, I wanted to start with a quote that I found in your sermon notes. I'm sure you also said it, but it was by T. Austin Sparks. He said it in the book, The Gospel According to Paul. And it states, when Christ truly captivates, everything changes and anything becomes possible, end quote. And I think that's what makes testimonies so powerful and so impactful is it's this story of true life change of how someone was one way and like mary magdalene says i became i'm gonna mess this up i was one way and now i'm entirely different yeah and And the the thing thing that that was in between was between was jesus was him yeah yeah Yeah, we did it we did it together together we've somehow muddled through but yeah go watch the chosen yeah, it's fantastic. Season four, out now, in theaters. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because I keep telling my bride and, and uh, those kids that live with me at home that we need to go see it because even though we know how the story goes, there's still spoilers because it's never been told this way before. Yeah. And as I was like, I need to get out there. So I anyway. I do too. Last time we went to the theater to watch that, it was with you. It was. We and other friends a- from Shiloh, but yeah. So anyway, you, what do you want me to talk about first then? Because we got distracted in a good way. Yeah. So maybe let's start with like what it means to be this new creation. And I think we'll go from there into talking about what the word ecclesia means mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. and, and kind of start from there. Okay. So. Well, so... I was even caught off guard in that message by my reading of the scripture and what I ended up doing with it. Like the, I can tell you that as a person who likes to write both fiction and nonfiction, you know, I, the hardest part is starting. It's always starting. Well, believe it or not, preaching the sermons the same way. I've written the notes. The first paragraph is always the hardest thing to write. Then when you get up there to preach, the first thing you have to do is start, you know, and so you stand in front of all these people and you're going, Okay, here we go. I mean, it's really difficult to explain, and maybe it's not a universal problem, but it is for me. 
it's always the first paragraph is tricky. And one of the things I like about opening with a scripture reading is it primes the pump, you know, and not in a way that says, I didn't really prepare. It just means that instead of having to figure out what to say first, I read the scripture. And then more often than not, it prompts me somehow. So I read this scripture passage, and you might tell them which one it is specifically because it's the Corinthians reading. Oh, yes. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five. Right. Thank you. And that passage basically is Paul using a sort of analogy of a tent. And as soon as I got done reading it, I thought, well, the problem with the analogy of the tent is that it doesn't really resonate with us unless we're in the habit of camping a lot, and even then it doesn't really fit. But but when I got finished reading the passage, it basically occurred to me that we could talk about how we wear clothes. So I'm going to paraphrase the passage to to make my point. The passage basically is Paul saying, Here's the thing, folks. We're, we, we look at the same on the outside because our outer garment is the same. Now, he's speaking metaphorically, and he's not talking literally about your clothing, but we can visualize it that way if we want to. You know, if you're used to wearing uniforms for a living, you know, if you work in a hospital or you, you know, work in an environment where everybody has a similar type of clothing— then this really fits. Because basically what he's saying is, is that we find ourselves having been changed in our nature, but we still have the same outer garment. And so we look the same on the outside, but it isn't until people encounter the part of you that's not readily visible that they begin to recognize that something profound has changed in you. So with that being said, if you take his analogy of the tent, what he's saying is right now we live in a tent that for all intents and purposes makes you look like a certain uniform thing, you know, like one of those neighborhoods where all the houses look the same or whatever, then we don't really know that inside is a whole new person, a whole new creation, right? And so Paul wants us to understand that we are something new on the inside, that we've been made new. And even when we look in the mirror, we have to deal with the fact that it still looks the same on the outside. And, and, and that's not our fault. That's just kind of our natural condition. And so I use the analogy of clothing to get the point across in the Sermon Sunday to just say, well, you know, it's kind of like we've got a new set of underwear that we have, you know, you know, we threw out all the old underwear, the old grimy, dirty underwear, the sweaty underwear, the stuff that really is not something you, you know, how your parents used to say, but on clean underwear, you might be in an accident and you don't want somebody at the hospital to see those, you know, <laughs> at least they said that when I was a kid. Okay. Yeah. No, I've heard of people saying yeah, the same. You know, yeah. And, and I've worked on the ambulance in the past as an EMT. And I can tell you a lot of people don't listen to their mothers, but that's another story. And what you realize, gross. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to put it that way. Yeah. So, so anyway, enough of this silliness. What what I drove to at the start of the sermon Sunday was that if people could understand that they've been given a new undergarment, and that new undergarment is the uniform of who they are now in Christ, and yet we still wear the same outer garment because that's just part of being in this human form, in this human state. 
in this fallen world. And, and the truth is, is you have to wear that in this fallen world in order to protect you against the elements of this fallen world. You know, again, it's a metaphor, but you can't live, you can't go around in your underwear most times of the year, even in Walmart, and not have problems because of it. So you wear clothing on the outside because that's the convention, that's what's part of human existence in the world. And some of that is to protect you from embarrassment and shame, and some of that is to protect you literally from the elements. But either way, you have this outer garment. And what Paul says is one of these days, Jesus is going to call us to him. And when he does, the outer garments are going to be, they're going to stay behind. They're going to fall off, fall away. And we're going to go in our new sort of spiritual birthday suit into the presence of God. And that will be our resurrection form. Still us, but made new. And, you know, if people have wicked sense of humor as I, as a wicked sense of humor as I want to avoid in my own life, but fail miserably most of the time, <laughs> then there's hearing all these jokes in there. But there's a point. And the point is really simple. If you are born again, you're made new from the inside out. And the outside you, is eventually going to reflect more of the new inside you over time and with some effort. And by effort, I don't mean that you can make yourself more holy, but you can work at getting you out of the way so that the holiness can emerge, which is really just another way of saying sanctification. So that's where I started Sunday, and it was really just from there, trying to make people understand that we, for whatever reason, we Christians have this need to continually confine ourselves to human terms. We, you know, people are so much more comfortable with religious institutions than they are freedom in Christ that they actually try to take away the freedom in Christ, not only from themselves, but everyone around them. You know, we don't allow that in our religion, you know. And and I'm not here advocating for debauchery or decadence. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about all this brilliantly, and I am not skilled to do it any better than him. But if you read, for example, in the first and second Corinthians, and if you read in Romans, you know, he talks about how we're we are free in Christ, which means we don't have to worry about getting it right. But at the same time, we shouldn't keep getting it wrong intentionally as if that somehow enables the Holy Spirit all the more. You know, like the, the point is, is that we don't need to become a perfect example of the ideal Christian in order to be the ideal Christian. In fact, doing that makes us the ideal Methodist or ideal Catholic or the ideal Lutheran or the ideal Presbyterian or the ideal Jew or the ideal Muslim, you know, that people do this all the time. They would rather be whatever their family of origin and their country of origin and their town of origin, you know, wherever they feel that they want to be accepted by other people, they will tend to model their ideal interpretation of the religion around the norms. And what Paul wants us to understand is, is that we're not that anymore. 
there's nothing that will, there's no reward for being a good Jew. There's no reward for being a good Christian. There's no reward for avoiding things that you've decided or that your tradition has decided are unclean, you know, that none of that will gain you anything. The thing that gains you eternal life is being born again. And being born again means becoming an entirely new creation. A third race is what we kind of look at. And the third race is based on the idea that, biblically speaking, there were Jews or the people of God before Christ, and there were Gentiles who were not part of the people of God, and those were the only two groups that people acknowledged, biblically speaking, as being, you know, what constituted humanity. You were either among the chosen, who were the people who kept the law of Moses, or you were a Gentile, which made you anything from a savage or a heathen to, at the very least, an unsophisticated but overall okay person. In fact, even today, Judaism has a word for people like that. They call them righteous Gentiles. And they have a garden at Yad Vashem, which is the international memorial for Holocaust survivors and victims in Jerusalem. So you go to Yad Vashem, they have several gardens where trees are planted in honors in honor of what they call righteous Gentiles, because they were people who, despite being non-Jewish, sacrificed much, sometimes their lives, to save Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. All that to say that even Judaism has to admit that some Jews or some non-Jews are pretty good people. So we'll call them righteous Gentiles, but they're still Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. Even today, they're righteous Gentiles. Now, this is no reason to be mad at Jews. I'm just saying that in the Jewish mindset, in the Judeo-Christian biblical view of things, there are two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. And Christianity created a conundrum for early Jews, or early Christians, rather, who were Jews, who converted to Christianity, and created a real conundrum for them because they weren't letting go of their Judaism to become Gentiles, but that meant that they also had to reconcile with the idea that you didn't have to be Jewish to become a Christian. And so they had this big, big problem over that. They had this big issue. It's all written in the book of Acts, and there was some tension between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and there was a Jerusalem council that was called by the Apostle James, and the whole thing was a, a issue because it was a way of trying to figure out whether you had to be a Jew to be a Christian. And they eventually decided you didn't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And the reason that they decided that was because even though we don't know that he said it, Later on at the council, later on, Paul says in his other writings, well, you see, it's because there aren't Jews or Gentiles anymore. You're either not part of the family of God or you are. And being part of the family of God means you've been redeemed by God's grace through Jesus Christ, and that makes you the third race. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does, and it's jogging my mind because— 
Well, this is just another God thing. In the youth group, we're talking about the story of Moses, and I'm learning about how God is a God of adoption, mm-hmm. right? So there's these stories of adoption in the Bible, and thank God that he adopts the Gentiles and he adopts people into his family. Mm-hmm. And all that's required is just saying, I want to be a part of it, and I want to honor you, God. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of cool to tie that together in my brain that Thank goodness he's a god of adoption. Well, and I mean, Ro- Roman tradition had a very strong legal interpretation of adoption. In Roman tradition, much like today, because you know, an awful lot of our legal system and stuff comes from Greek and Roman tradition. What a lot of people don't realize is that that actually started with Jewish tradition. <laughs> you know, that a lot of the best things we get from from Greek and Roman tradition started with Jewish tradition. And our whole interpretation of the legal system really originates with the Old Testament and the Jewish legal system. But all that to say that there is a strong indication in Scripture, and Paul writing as a Roman citizen to Roman citizens, which was one of his big audiences, says, look, you, get, you need to understand you've been adopted by God the Father because of Christ the Son. And by adoption, that makes you co-heirs with Christ the Son, which means that when the Father passes on all of his wealth that he's accumulated and all of his property, you are entitled to equal portions of that distribution. And that's exactly what Paul is communicating. That is exactly what he wants people to hear, is you are a new creation because you've been basically reconstituted as the sons and daughters of Adam. So the whole idea of a third race is pretty out there until you understand that God created the unique race of people who were descendants of Adam in God's own image. And what we sacrificed or tarnished so irreparably in the original sin of Adam was the image of God in us. And so the idea is is that when we were cast out of the garden, we were also sent into the world as a tarnished representation of the image of God in us, permanently stained, you know? And I don't know if you've ever had something dirty or a garment that's got a stain on it, and you've tried everything you could think of to get the stain out of it, and you just can't. That's what it is. Thank you for reminding me that I still have clothes in the washer that I was trying to get a stain out of last <laughs> night. <laughs> I'm uh, here to help. Going to have to wash that again. It's probably still not going to come out, right? <laughs> well, maybe. You know, my wife <laughs> is a miracle worker when it comes to getting stains out of clothes, and I'm a miracle creator. Well, it's not coming out right. I create opportunities for miracles regularly. Sure. Because I'm always staining my clothes. And and it's usually because I'm a slob. But, you know, nonetheless, that's what we were when we were cast into the world as fallen humanity. Humanity in the image of Adam or in the image of God is stained permanently. We have a, a sort of mark of of filthiness. So with that being said, then Jesus comes along and he basically takes away the stain of our sin and we are no longer tarnished by the sin of Adam and therefore in God's eyes we look as clean and pure and good as the real son, the actual son of God, Jesus. Therefore, God views us as adopted sons and daughters untainted by sin. 
that's the inner garment. That's the under nature of us that's been changed. In theological terms, it's the kind of stuff they teach you in seminary, and seminaries, at least in my day, because I think they're changing, but seminaries back in, in the day taught these things in a way that kind of reinforced the whole messed up sort of religious institutional system. It wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't tell you what was true, it's just they told it in a way that was institutional in and of itself. Like, like, at this seminary, we believe, you know, so it's like, like, yeah, but what I really want to know is what does the Bible want me to believe? You know, what does Christ want me to believe? What does the Holy Spirit want me to believe? But anyway, in seminary, they, they would teach, my seminary taught us that, you know, this was what we call original sin. And, and honestly, if you look at, like, we have a lot of Lutherans around here and a lot of Catholics around here, and they have a catechism. And the catechism stems from a concept of a number of questions and answers that a Christian is supposed to learn. So, you, you learn the answer first by forming the question. So, for example, a catechism says, what is natural sin? And then the same person who asks the question then answers it, and that means they've performed the catechism, they've passed their Christian education because they have understood the question and the answer. Because a lot of times when it comes to spiritual matters, the questions are as important as the answers. In order to get the answer right, you got to get the question right. Yeah, fair. And that's that can be very tricky, right? And so, for example, we would ask in, you know, 100 years ago, the catechism question of what is natural sin, the answer and and some of people listening, I doubt it because you know I'm not really sure those people listen to this. But but some people who are listening to this could have come from that tradition and might be able to recite verbatim what they were taught in the Lutheran Catechism or in the Catholic Catechism or whatever. But basically, the answer to what is natural sin is is that sin which was imparted to us by Adam. In other words, because of his initial fallen nature. Because he, though in made in the image of God, adopted an undergarment or a, a undernature that is tainted by sin. We are all descendants of Adam still, but now with this tainted undernature of sin, meaning that we have this natural nature. <laughs> natural nature. you. <laughs> there's a phrase. <laughs> but we have this natural coloring that is off because we are you know, and people take offense at that because they're reading something into it. But I mean, what I'm getting at is, is we all have this tarnish on us that reveals our sin and conceals our purity, you know? And, and that was given to us. It was transferred to us down through the ages in the sort of spiritual DNA of Adam, right? And then Christ comes along and he takes away the sin that leaves us tarnished and hides our pure inner nature. And then, in effect, accepting that gift from him rewrites our spiritual DNA so that we're no longer burdened with natural sin. We're no longer descendants of sinful Adam. We're descendants of pure Adam. And that, that's what natural sin is, right? Well, we don't like putting it in those terms, but it still takes us back to that whole analogy of the garment. Under all of our clothing, we have these bodies that have this mark visible at least to God, if no one else, that says we're sinners. 
descended from Adam's sin. And then Paul wants us to understand that that's been taken away, that we're no longer tarnished by Adam's sin. We're pure in God's sight underneath our outer garment. And so then there becomes this other form of sin that we do have to contend with every day, even after being born again. And it is the process of sanctification or shedding that outer garment, like, or that tent, you know. And as you've heard me say many times, you know, I'm really fond of C.S. Lewis. Jack Lewis had a way of saying things that really resonated with me. And what I got from him that has carried me for 20 years now is this how the the process doesn't end just because you die and leave this earth. You know, in fact, it probably accelerates because you die and leave this earth because now you've shed some of that outer garment and you're not as heavily burdened as you were, you know, because the problem we have is in this world, we are trying to shed our tendency to remember how to sin, which is ultimately rejecting God and God's discipline. So we we reject discipleship or the discipline of our Lord, and we find it easier to reject in the world we're living in because there's all these sort of clingy things that are like cuckleburrs that just stick to our outer garment because we happen to be in the vicinity. You know, you, sometimes you walk through a field in the fall and you go, "Where did all of that come from?" And you get all the stuff all over your pant legs, and you don't even know how you got it. Yeah. And and it's the world attaching sin to you again and again and again. And you have to stop and you have to remove it. And sometimes you can scrape it away and sometimes you have to pluck one by one. So, you know, if you continue with that analogy, that's basically the, the condition we're in right now. But, you know, if you can imagine that you get to a place where you can leave the clingy sin behind and you can leave behind the garment that naturally attracts it, then you're freer still to become more aligned with your pure nature that, you know, God has already kind of rooted you with. You know, if you were a, you know, if you were a tower and your inner portions that actually hold the outer portions up have become corrupt. Eventually, the whole tower's coming down, but God has somehow figured a way to replace the inner girding of the tower, you know, all that metalwork and everything that you can't see in a building or whatever has been replaced with brand new, latest high-tech, powerful titanium, and it's like the inner part is solid. But the outer part still looks old, and sometimes it even crumbles and falls away. But the building's not coming down. I mean, that that's I am just loaded with analogies today, but that's sometimes the only way I know how to express an idea. So again, if if we are if we if we go back to the tent analogy and then upgrade it to a building analogy, what we've done is somehow the Holy Spirit through our faith in Christ has transferred or transferred changed our inner framework from an old corrupt and eventually collapsing metalwork to something new and uncorruptible that will not collapse. Yeah. 
So in your metaphor, you think building. In my mind, I think human beings. Mm -hmm. And I well, think, yeah. yeah. A physical therapist. Yeah. Sure. And so anyone who's ever had, say, a knee replacement can definitely relate to that or a hip replacement or something. The structure, the bone, well... Okay. The connective tissue around the bone is crumbling and breaking and you can't move well and you feel terrible and your knee creaks and it makes all these terrible sounds. And you go in and you replace that component with something new and fresh. And suddenly, well, through some pain and through some rehab, you become this new sort of a new being of like a new activities and things that you haven't been able to do for 20 years and stuff like that. So, yeah. so there's a lot of ways that we can definitely connect this that makes sense. I think even for non-Christians, like they can relate to the burrs on the legs and and the knee replacements and the the structures. So let's take that one step further. So through Christ, we are a new creation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then what? Right. So then we start talking about what do we as new creations do? And a lot of times we we do church. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the more that we're digging into the series, the more that we're kind of uncovering, what does that even mean? Like, what does it even mean to be a church? Is it just a bunch of beings who are new creations and they come together? Does church have to look like that? Is church filled with these new beings or is it filled with people who maybe aren't? Like, what what even is church, right? And so there's a word for that, ecclesia, and it's a Greek word translated as church. And you talked about that in the sermon as well on Sunday, and you said it doesn't refer to a building, a denomination, a global organization, or mere gatherings. In the first century, the ecclesia was a local community giving allegiance to Jesus, expressing their shared life as the very body of Christ in a city. And that was actually a quote. I should have said quote before. Sorry, Frank. But that was from Frank's book, Insurgents, mm -hmm. there. So I want to give him credit when credit is due. Yeah. So, so, yeah, talk a little bit about that. What are your thoughts? What is Ecclesia? What does that mean for us, at both, both us at Shiloh and us as a community and us as a world? Okay. Well, the first thought that I have occurred while you were speaking about this, because it occurred to me that that if we want to stick with that analogy that we are clothed in an outer garment right now that we are eager to shed so that we can be, you know, get down to that layer, that base layer, you know, as they say in the sporting world, right? We want to get down to that base layer that is our good garment. And right now what we are wearing attracts the cockleburs and the various things that attach to us as we try to get through the fields. That are, you know, so taking that analogy and imagining that we are talking about taking our sinful nature, not we killed, we shed that nature. So, so that's gone, but, but we take our sinful nature or, or our tendency to continue to be susceptible to sin. And then we walk through the fields where the sin is ripe and present and ready to attach itself. You know, remember the cockleburs and all that stuff that sticks to your clothes in the fall is the seeds of weeds that want you to help carry them into other places. And so they attach to you so that you can plant them somewhere else and spread the weeds everywhere you go. So we take that whole analogy and we realize that the weeds 
are the world and the world of sin, and sin is attaching itself to our outer garment that is the nature or the tendency to sin that we still have, then what would be the ecclesia or the, the ecclesia? What would it be? It would be a place where we intentionally clear away the weeds and we hang out with other people who don't want those weeds to attach themselves to us, right? And so the ecclesia or the ecclesia could be a place where people who do not desire to wade, wade through the weeds clear a place to seek the purity or the cleanness that God has enabled in us. And yet what seems to have happened, and I'm going to get into real language and not this metaphorical language, but, but what seems to have happened over the generations is that we've planted churches for the purpose of avoiding traipsing through the weeds of sin, and then we've decided that we, weeds are just a natural part of church. Like, like we've, instead of it being a place that is clear of all of that, we've embraced it, we've opened, we've welcomed it in, you know, like we've accepted it in a way. So, so okay, the analogy, I've probably gone as far with that as I can, and I'm losing people. Here's what I, what I want to say. We are born again, and our, you know, our inner nature has changed. Our inner being has changed. So we got the knee replacement. We've had the framework of our building replaced with a new and permanent structure that will, will not fail. And then we set about trying to repair the outer part. And, you know, I, if I was going to take your, your, physical therapy analogy, I'd say, you know, as long as my knee hurts, I don't exercise very much. So I get kind of fat and lethargic because I don't want the pain, but then I get my knee fixed. And now I have a fat lethargic body that has to be reconditioned Yeah, or it's going to keep getting fat and lethargic. So now I have to do disciplines and exercises to not only make my life with my new replacement joint better, but I also have to regain my vitality that I lost while I was subject to the pain and the discomfort and the disability associated with the failed inner thing. So now I've got the new inner thing, which means that I have to start working on the outer thing again. I got to say, okay, the inner problem is resolved. Now I got to work on the outer problem. And the outer problem is, is me and sin. I'll say something that really spoke to me. You, you and I were both in a program on Saturday that was really in, insightful and, and ma magnificent. And I read a passage from among, you know, I, thanks to Frank Viola, I am a real devotee, as if you can be more favorably disposed towards one book of the Bible than another. But I, I'm finding that I cannot adequately probe the depths of the book of Colossians, for example. It's like, oh my gosh. Who knew that every time you put three words together in Colossians, you got a new message, you got a new depth of understanding. And I was reading Colossians, and all of a sudden, it just really dawned on me that lately, and I mean like six or eight months of lately, it's been hard for me to look to things above. And I won't go into that to any more extent, simply because it would take us outside of our context for today, but but. I I have said to myself, what is it? It's Wednesday, and we did that Saturday. 
at least three or four times a day, every day since last Saturday, I have said to myself, stop, think about things above. When I caught myself not thinking about things above, but actually thinking about things below. Mm. Above and below is another, and it's sort of another analogy that's used in Scripture to describe the things of God versus the things of the earth, or the weeds versus the non-weeds, or the sin nature versus, you know, it always comes back to the same thing. Sometimes I get focused on the world of the flesh, and I get focused on the weakness of my flesh and my inability to shed the sin on my outer garment. And what the Bible advises me to do is to at least, in those moments, focus on things above. Even if it doesn't necessarily produce a repaired outer shell, it is at least putting a stop to the damage to the outer shell, you know? So, so basically, if we live in the world below and we are always thinking about things in the world below, then even though we have a reconstructed inner being, we haven't taken care of the outer problem, which is the fact that we got fat and lethargic when our knee hurt, or the fact that our building got really scary when it didn't feel safe in there because the framework wasn't as good as it could be. And, and, you know, and on and on we go with the analogies, but in reality, it, it comes down to the fact that if you focus on things above, it's going to force you to condition yourself for things above. And that's the point that shedding the outer garment that still collects the sin that the world is always attaching to you can be negated by focusing on like improving that outer nature you know by by saying you know i'm going to i'm going to take my favorite machete into the woods with me and when i start walking through those weedy fields i'm going to cut a path where i won't be you know so, so you're making an intentional effort to push away those things that are sinful that would attach themselves to you without you even being altogether aware. So what does that look like? Well, my friend Frank Viola actually talked with me quite a bit about this in our late night chats, because as you know, sometimes I will slip up and remember a word that I learned 25 years or 35 years ago when I was, no, not 25 years. Holy smokes, I'm getting old. <laughs> I'll remember a word I learned 35 or 40 years ago back in the trucking industry when I was not a pastor and when I wasn't the Christian that I am today. And I will let those words come out of my mouth periodically. And Frank heard me use a word like that one night. And he said, don't, don't let yourself think that's okay. And I'm thinking, oh man, are you being, you know, like, I hope you're not going to be one of these legalists. You know, you wrote the book that said, don't be a legalist and don't be a, a hedonist, you know, be, and, but he took it a step further. He said, how can you keep your head above if you don't think there's anything wrong with dipping down there? Like, like it isn't that we guard our speech against cursing and sinful words because we're trying to win the approval of people even the approval of God. It's that we avoid those things because that's like saying, I don't care if that cucklebur is attached to me. Mm. It's okay if that cucklebur stays there. You know, that, it, and, and that's a huge thing. And, and boy, folks, if you're still with us and you're paying attention, 
I want you to think about what I just said. If I was preaching a sermon, I'd say, let's say that one again. Let's write that one down. This is something worth remembering and being able to recite. What my friend Frank was trying to tell me is, is I understand that you picked up a bad habit of using bad words when you worked in the trucking industry in your 20s and that those words are still in there and they still come out when you stub your toe or something. But the truth is, is every time they come out, it shouldn't feel okay. And it's not the words. It's not the society. It's not the church people that you go to church with or anything else. It is like, don't let it be about people. And in a way, don't even let it be about whether you think God loves you or not, because he's already loved you into eternity. Like, like God is going to forgive you for saying a foul word. He's going to forgive you. But taking that for granted is letting weeds grow in the church. Taking that for granted is saying, these are things that can attach to me that I don't care about, or they don't matter. It all matters. If the goal is to shed the outer garment and be fully functional as the person God intends you to be, that he reworked your framework for, then we should always strive to be that. And, and I can't say this satisfactorily enough to suit me, but I really, really, really want to get this across because as a pastor, I've encountered this sort of thing quite frequently, even in this church, even in the recent years. Someone will say to me that they don't approve of the fact that I had a beer with the Catholic priest, let's say. And I saw it as a way to break bread with the guy and, and make peace with a guy who is a colleague of a sort. And, you know, in other words, I viewed it as, as a peacemaking thing, not unlike Jesus having dinner with sinners and breaking bread with tax collectors and then getting condemned for that and being called a drunkard. I thought of it in those terms, not to say that the local priest is a tax collector or a sinner, but to simply say that I couldn't imagine there was anything wrong with me having a beer with the local priest, especially if it was about unity of the Christian body, right? And yet someone criticized me for that. But the basis on which they criticized it had nothing to do with anything except their tradition and their tastes. So their idea, legalistic as it is, of why that was a bad thing was all about them and how it made them feel to think that their pastor had a beer with a Catholic priest. In fact, the person who said this to me even went so far as to say, they do that, but we don't. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Now, be, please don't be mad at this person, whoever it is that you might picture in your head, because that's not what I'm trying to get at. My point is that what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to understand what my friend Frank Viola was trying to tell me that night was, you want to avoid these things for one reason and one reason only, because your goal is personal holiness, and as long as one cucklebur is okay, you'll never reach personal holiness. And it has nothing to do with anybody. It can't even be about God approving of you or disapproving of you, because then you're asking God to meet you where you are in evaluating your holiness. Like, you have to let him—you have to ascend to his holiness, not ask him to descend to you and make you holy. He already did that. This is tricky. I, I feel like I'm—maybe I, you're not as confused as I am right now, but I—, I 
my my point is is that he already descended to our level to make us holy and now he's asking us to ascend to his level because there's nothing stopping us i mean these are th there's an old cliche that i don't remember exactly how it goes but it basically says you know he became like us so we could become like him right yeah well that's the point and and so every time we let one thing be okay that keeps us from ever reaching him then we'll never reach him and the mistake we make is trying to get God's approval in a human mind way or other people's approval in that human way. In, in other words, we don't, we don't try to avoid sin because we're afraid that God will be mad at us because he's not. He's already dealt with that. In fact, I think he finds it tedious when we obsess over that. He's not asking us to stop sinning because he's still keeping score. He's asking us to stop sinning because he can't wait for us to get where he is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's said, I already canceled the score. You know, I already wiped the slate clean. It's, it's, it's like I like to play putt-putt golf, you know, and, the, and when you add up the tally at the end of the course, you know, it's usually pretty disheartening, even though I had a lot of fun. And God, you know, God says, give me that card. You know, he throws it away. Did you have fun? Yeah. Okay. You know, like he's not keeping score anymore. You know what I mean? He really, I do like playing putt-putt golf. I bet I've never told you that. But this is one of my favorite things. Nice. I enjoy putt-putt golf or gadget golf or whatever you call it. But anyway, I, I, I just like going all over the place with analogies today. But, but, but seriously, you know, it's like what God wants us to understand is that shedding the outer garment or, or shedding the old tent or whatever you want to call it is about ascending to him because he's created the clear path to him. You know, there's nothing preventing us. If, if we were trying to ascend to him, but we were going to eventually run into a giant golden gate, you know, pearly gates or whatever you call them, right? If we knew that we were going to ascend as far as possible in and of our own strength, the personal ability to act righteous and holy and keep the law of Moses or keep the law of Christianity or whatever other laws we thought were better than freedom in Christ. If we were doing that, we were inevitably going to run into a barricade that we couldn't get past and never reach Christ. But what we get when we receive freedom in Christ, true freedom in Christ, when we really embrace the gospel of the kingdom, what we understand is, is that we are already inside the gates. We've already been allowed past the barrier that kept us out. To put it in the most beautiful way I can think of is we were kicked out of Garden of Eden because of sin, and now we're welcome back in the Garden of Eden because the sin problem has been dealt with. The reason that we're not sitting on God's lap is because we have yet to shed all of our sin garment, our outer ugliness, our, our whatever you want to call it. We are allowed in the garden now, but we can't walk in the cool of the garden with God until a certain point in the future when we cast off the outer garment entirely and we are holy enough to be in his presence, like hold hands with him and stroll through the Garden of Eden, right? But we're not barred from the garden anymore. Once we were barred from the garden, and part of the reason we were barred from the garden because God was also barring God's enemies from the garden. God closed the gate to everybody. Mm -hmm. 
But now he's given us like the code to the key, the the door locking system. You know, it's like it's a Eden's a gated community, and we have the key card or the key code, and all we have to do is go boop, 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 and we're in anytime we want. But when we get in, we're still wearing our sin outer garment. And what my friend Frank was so brilliantly trying to express to me that night was, is, and yet when you use those words. You're saying, I want to be in the pure and holy presence of God, but I want this cucklebird to stay right where it is. Well, then all of a sudden, it makes Christian discipline meaningful in a way that's whole different. And this is what the ecclesia is, right? Ecclesia is the body of people who are sharing a commitment to personal holiness, not for any other reason than their desire to be in the immediate presence of God, as much as that can happen given our fallen state prior to the return of Christ. That's the ecclesia. The ecclesia is not a group of people who have agreed on a bunch of standards that we're all trying to uphold. The ecclesia is not a group of people who have agreed upon an entire sort of organizational structure and institutional system. The ecclesia is, is a group of people that don't necessarily have to have an answer for every question. And they don't have to worry about getting the question right either. The ecclesia are people who live in the freedom of Christ to enter into the presence of God as much as they can and understand every time they, you know, struggle in their striving, it's just because they haven't entirely shed the outer garment of the fallen world's sin. But we'll keep working at it. And not for any other reason than we just desire to be in the presence of God, that we desire to be with God, and we're welcome, you know? So that's what the ecclesia is. It's, it's a third race of people who have been completely transformed from the inside out, and they're all striving to be transformed on the outside, too. And in the meantime, they share a love for God that unites them in their shared purpose of worshiping God, imitating Christ, letting the Holy Spirit inhabit and captivate them. They've, they've given themselves willingly to God and the authority of Jesus Christ and the, the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit. They've given themselves joyfully to that. And they wish to associate with other people who are also given to that. And the reason they associate with each other is because if you're all on the same road traveling towards the same destination, sooner or later you're going to see each other on the road. <laughs> you know, you, hey, are you going there too? Why, yes, I am. Well, we must be the ecclesia, you know. <laughs> yeah. But somehow we've, we humans in our sinful nature have tried to get God to conform to our image because that's easier than living in the freedom to aspire to his image because it's easier to set a bunch of rules and disciplines in place and then tell each other that we're holy and pat each other on the back for being such good people. And you know what? It, come Judgment Day, it won't matter what you think of me, Adrian. I like that you think I'm a pretty good guy, and I like being your friend and mentor and all that, but at the end of the day, that won't get me past God's judgment. It's going to be his opinion of me. 
Thankfully, when he looks at me, he sees his son, but there are also indications in Scripture that his son's going to be, you know, divvying out jobs and responsibilities and things like that in the new creation, and and his decisions are going to be based on how he sees me, and if he sees me carrying around some cuckleburs that I'm really infatuated with and just don't want to give up, he's going to say, well, okay, too bad you couldn't get, you know, and you know, will there be cussing in heaven when I die before the resurrection? Probably not, but there might be cussing in purgatory or out in the gray zone outside of heaven. And I know we've talked about whether purgatory is a thing or not, but I like C.S. Lewis, Jack Lewis's interpretation. He doesn't really think of purgatory in the same terms as our Catholic brethren, but he does think that there are degrees of nearness to the heart of God even after you die. So yeah, there's probably places outside the light of God's eternal presence and present uh, eternal glory, you know, where you can be in a shadow and get away with a curse word or two, but then you'd just be living in the shadows outside of heaven's gates. Who wants that? Well, people who really don't aspire for more. If you're not comfortable with that analogy, read the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and you'll understand what I mean. I still need to read that book. <clears throat> I'm kind of crazy about that book, and I really feel like people that know me are probably tired of hearing about it. And it's like, but it answered so many questions for me. Yeah. But I have to admit, it answered the question in a way that I tend to talk. And, and you know that really well, because when I sit here in this podcast, for example, and I talk the way I do, it's like I'm always using analogies and I'm always using imagery and all of this to, to explain the points that I'm trying to make. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But the reason I love The Great Divorce is because like the Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other things that C.S. Lewis wrote, he's using analogy to get a point across. And through the analogy, I get it. You know, his analogies speak more plainly to me than the than the ideas themselves sometimes would because I'm not able to get inside his head and see what he sees. So I give you a picture of what I see. And then if it's close enough, when you get done looking at it, then we understand each other. Mm -hmm. And that's just what, that's the best way I know how to put it. Yeah. Yeah. How do I do with your questions? I think we got there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll probably wrap it there for today. But I think something good to think about, listeners, like, what is that burr for you? Mm-hmm. You know, what is that burr that's on your leg that you're like, oh, that's okay. It can stay there. Is it drunkenness? Is it cussing? Is it gluttony, maybe? I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff that it could be. But just a good self-reflection question. Okay, I'm going to ask you to do something right now, Adrian, and if I get the ask right, it'll be a miracle. Oh, boy. But if I get the ask right, you're going to get the answer right. Tell our friends why it doesn't matter what I think of your cussing, your drinking, or whatever else you mentioned. Tell our friends why it doesn't matter what God thinks of it, or I should say what you think God thinks of it. What's the real goal? Why shed the cucklebur? The real goal is so that we can more accurately reflect God's light to the world and to show the world who he is. Because if we show the world some 
brokenness and claim to be Christians, that's confusing, and that's not the gospel. I believe um, that's absolutely true, but that isn't the answer I was looking for. Darn. There should be a buzzer. Uh, no, um, because you weren't wrong. You were right, but not in the way that I was going, because there was something I tried to say earlier that I'm trying to figure out whether it made sense to you. Okay, let me try again. Let me try again, because I think I know what you're talking about. I think because of Jesus, God already took away our sin. He He already sent his son to wipe our sin. He loves us no matter what. If we curse, if we do all these things, he still loves us. And he still calls us the prodigal son, right? So as long as we keep coming back to him and loving him, that's what he wants. Yes. And so the reason for shedding those sins that cling to our outer nature, our sinful nature, our, our, what's left of our sinful nature, right? The reason for shedding those things is because they restrict our movement closer to God's lap, right? Mm -hmm. So what I hope people, the reason I'm putting you through this is because it's so important to me that people understand this point. If, they, if you don't remember anything else that we talked about today, friends, I hope you get this. Adrian is absolutely right. If you want other people to believe in your Jesus the way you believe in him, then anything you do to discredit him is going to hinder that. Adrian is right. You are guiltless in God's sight, so it isn't that your behaviors are separating you from God anymore, because they're not. But your goal is to sit on God's lap at the center of everything. Read The Great Divorce if you're having trouble with what I'm getting at, but you don't have to. If your goal is to be on God's lap at the center of everything, then you're a long way away if you're still okay with the cuckleburrs. So the reason that you want to shed the cuckleburrs that are the sins that you haven't been able to scrape off is not because you want the approval of other people. It isn't even because you want God's approval because you already have God's approval. The reason you want to shed the cuckleburrs is because they are creating drag in your journey to God's lap. Love it. Yes. That's what I want people to hear. When you are so, remember how, you know, because there's a progression here that Frank gave us in this book. I suspect there are things that Frank didn't even know he said, because that's when God's talking through us, right? When, when we look at how a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the essential need to adore Christ's beauty, right? Adoring his beauty makes you want to run to him. It makes you want to sit on his lap and, and not only adore him, but be adored by him. You know, every day I go home and my dog slobbers all over me and jumps all over me. And I routinely say, I know you just can't get enough of my awesomeness. And it really isn't because I think I'm so awesome. It's because I can't believe this dog thinks I'm so awesome, but she does, <laughs> you know, she adores me. And, and she thinks that everything I do, everything about me is, is worthy of licks and hugs and love. And yeah, my dog hugs. And, and it's like, it's like, I just go, you just can't get enough of my awesomeness, can you? You've missed it for all these hours. And now you're trying to make up for that. That's adoring. And 
I want to be worthy of that adoration and give the love back, you know, which is why my dog, you know, doesn't kill us and eat us in our sleep, but actually tries to protect us. But at the end of the day, it's like, why do I aspire to be in Christ's presence? Because I can't help it, because I'm irresistibly drawn to his presence. And if I find myself getting so close to his presence and then you know, getting hung up on something that's keeping me from, I want to shed that so I can get to him. You know, if you really, really, really want to get to something and your clothes, you know, like your pant leg or whatever is stuck, you know, you'll take off your pants and run without pants to get there anyway. You know, like you'll shed the garment that has got you bound up and keeping you from getting to the lap of the Lord God that you desperately desire to be on. And so when I say that we want to shed the sin, yes, it's about our witness. Yes, it's important to understand that we're forgiven. But the reason we want to shed the sin is because it's restraining our run to the Lord, the Lord's lap. You know, we, we want to get to him so we can adore him. My dog goes bananas if she's outside when I get home from work and she realizes I just came home. And she's going nuts. She's bouncing off the patio door. She's bouncing off the back door. She's out there crying and barking and everything because she wants to get in the house and lick me and jump all over me and love all over me because I'm so awesome. (laughs) And that's exactly why if she had it in her power, she would just knock the door down because that's better than not being able to get to me. So my dog has taught me a lot about loving Jesus. And all you had to do was open the door, right? Right. And just accept the love. Yeah. 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 And I should mention, if you didn't know it, my dog's an 85-pound German shepherd. So when she loves and hugs all over you, you ain't doing anything else. <laughs> yeah. Not till she's done. She puts her paws on me. Like, she'll put her paw on my chest and go, hold it. You know, I'll say, okay, I really want to get up now. <clears throat> no. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, wait a minute. Who's in charge here? Well, for the moment, I am because I'm holding you in place. Yeah, yeah, but I got to go to the bathroom. I don't care. You know, I need to lick you more. <laughs> Goodness. All right, friends, we'll call it there for this week. Yeah, I think we better. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you.